Hi, WorkWell listeners. I'm really excited to mm-hmm. share that my book, Work Better Together, is officially out. Conversations with WorkWell guests and feedback from listeners like you inspired this book. Right. It's all about how to create a more human-centered workplace. And as we return to the office for many of us, this book can help you move forward into post-pandemic life with strategies and tools to strengthen your relationships and focus on your well-being. It's available now from your favorite book retailer. Many organizations have perks and programs designed to enhance employee wellness, but these efforts often miss the mark in actually boosting worker well-being. So what can organizations do to make meaningful progress in creating a happier, healthier, and more resilient workforce? The answer lies in culture. This is the WorkWell podcast series. Hi, I'm Jen Fisher, Chief Wellbeing Officer for Deloitte, and I'm so pleased to be with you today to talk about all things well-being. I'm here with Dr. Richard Safir. He currently serves as the Chief Medical Director of Employee Health and Well-Being for Johns Hopkins Medicine. He also teaches in the Department of Health, Behavior, and Society at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Dr. Safir is a regular conference speaker on the topic of building a culture of health and well-being and has published numerous journal articles on the topic, as well as the book, A Cure for the Common Company, a well-being prescription for a happier, healthier, and more resilient workforce. Rich, welcome to the show. It's it's so great to have you on, um, and you know I want to start the the way I, I start with all of my guests and really understand how you became so passionate about this topic of workplace well being. Uh, thank you, Jen. Uh, I'm happy to share that story. I was a practicing family doctor for about a year when I kind of got. Um, tired, emotionally exhausted, didn't feel like I was making a difference. Mm. This had to be 25 years ago or so, and we didn't call it burnout at the time. Yeah. And, you know, I, I felt like my patients were rushing into the office during the workday and then rushing out, and neither of us had time to stop and really look at what were the root causes of their illnesses and, and how could... I helped them build new skills and and better and healthier practices so that they didn't have to take their prescription medicines. And it got me to thinking that I needed to find uh, a different path for my own professional well-being. And when I realized that my patients were spending 15 to 30 minutes with me, but 2,000 hours a year in the workplace... I quickly understood that I needed to work for a company to help their employees and help the organization. That's how I found my path. So you've been, so you're kind of one of the OGs in the industry. (laughs) Um, An accidental OG from my own, probably suffering from my own job, uh, to be frank. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think that there's, perhaps many of us in this industry yeah. that have fallen in that category and had to find a different path and, and feel so deeply about helping others not get where we got, right? Yeah. You know, Jen, I, I was lucky that I studied nutrition in college. And though that, that first year, a big part of what I was seeing with my patients was that they weren't making the best food choices mm. and that they weren't moving enough. I was very 
conscious of that because of my undergraduate education. And so um, in some way, it was an OG experience because of my own job not meeting my needs. But in other ways, like I'm so grateful for my college education because it helped me see a path forward. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think, um, you know, that, that insight or recognition of, of the impact that nutrition has on our overall well-being and in a lot of cases, um, is unfortunately overlooked or perhaps said differently is so confusing to people, especially now. Um, we just don't know what choices to make. Yeah, it's, you know, consumers, uh, employees, citizens, whatever you want to call each and every one of us, we are overwhelmed with messages and they're not always true or completely uh, true. And it's pretty challenging. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to kind of take a step back here and and learn from you um, because there are many different, kind of along the same lines, there are many different definitions of well-being. Perhaps, you know, um, there's, you know, none of them are are, are wrong or um, better than another, but there are many different definitions. And so let's start with how you define it. Jen, I talk about this very issue of definitions in the introductions of my book. I start with the definition of health as defined by the World Health Organization, and then I get into wellness and, and well-being. And what where I've arrived is that well-being to me is a lifelong journey that ebbs and flows and heads towards an optimal state of health. Um, I also ask everyone to give each other forgiveness if people use these words interchangeably. Mm -hmm. Uh, All too often, some of our discussions, at least in the employer world, get bogged down in wellness versus well-being, and it really keeps us from moving forward to um, a productive outcome that benefits everyone who works in that organization. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I (laughs) have that experience myself. Um, And I actually used to kind of be a stickler about the definition between well-being and wellness. And I think I have come to recognize and appreciate that as long as somebody is taking positive steps along the journey, then it doesn't necessarily matter what we call it. (laughs) Yeah. And and flexibility is a well-being strategy. And so when we're flexible with each other and uh, appreciate each other's um, definitions, it really makes for uh, an an easier day. Yeah, absolutely. So why do we need well-being at work? And perhaps, you know, this question coming from me feels a little bit rhetorical, but explain to me, you know, in terms of your own point of view, why do we need well-being at work? And why should organizations care about this? Well, Jen, first, uh, it's a real pleasure to be on your podcast because I appreciate our shared um, origin, and I also appreciate our shared roles in our organizations. We spend most of our waking hours mm-hmm. with our colleagues and in our workplace, and if we don't include well-being during the workday, then our chances of finding optimal health and happiness are, are pretty small. It's not just the individuals who benefit, it's also the organizations. As we've seen from the last few years, employees are leaving their jobs in record numbers because 
they're not happy with where they're working. And a large part of that is the way they feel or don't feel that their employer is taking care of them. I'll also say that it's more than just retention. It's also about attracting talent because when employers take care of their employees, the employees feel good about it. They tell their friends, their family, and word starts to spread through the community. We're all familiar with people who've said, oh yeah, that company, that's a great company to work for. I hear they have a lot of fun there. And just the opposite. Oh no, don't work there. It's a really toxic workplace. Mm. This, this, These kind of conversations are happening all over the place. And you want to be the company where people want to work. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think that, um, you know, just kind of reflecting on some of the, you know, more current news and news cycle about, you know, um, a softening of the economy and various organizations that are reducing their workforce. Um, do you think that that's going to change things? It's certainly a, a worry of mine that, you know, organizations and leaders that have had well-being so top of mind for, for many reasons over the past few years. But what are, are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, a lot of organizations see well-being as a cyclical part of their company's uh, financial health. And I would not be surprised if some organizations cut back in this area, but I obviously think it's a mistake. Mm -hmm. Some organizations look at it as a cost, whereas they'd be better served to look at it as an investment. I mean, there's plenty of studies to show that when organizations embrace employee health and well-being as a shared value, that they're going to be much more financially successful. It's just that some companies and leaders have a hard time uh, looking past the next financial quarter. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's really to the detriment of the long-term success of their organization. Yeah, I, I obviously couldn't yeah. agree more to that. But, you know, when we talk about, you know, you talk about this need for well-being at work, can you walk me through, you know, what that looks like in your mind? Because I also think there's some misconceptions there that, you know, well-being at work is, you know, yoga at 2 p.m., right? Yeah. Um, and yeah. while yoga at 2 p.m. by no means is a bad thing, um, that's not really what we're talking about here. No, not really. And it's really just a few percentage of the population that can take advantage of resources <laughs> yoga at 2 like that. <laughs> right. I wish I was doing yoga at 2 p.m. today. Um, really, it's a matter of integrating well-being into our work processes and our day-to-day, um, hour-to-hour, minute-to-minute interactions and approach to the workday. And so to me, well-being is about not just an individual endeavor, but an organizational um, intentional effort toward building a well-being culture where well-being is part of the organization's fabric. I happen to believe that there are six crucial well-being culture building blocks that when used to their full potential, create that well-being culture where it's easier for everyone to have a happy and healthy day. Yeah, absolutely. So can you walk us through, I love the six building blocks. So can you walk us through what those are? 
Oh, sure. And I'm going to give everyone an acronym. So if you want to remember this, you have a fighting chance at remembering it. So the phrase that we're going to work from is plan for success. And the first building block is for the P in plan. It stands for peer support. This is about the way our coworkers support both our healthy habits and our positive emotions. Or they might do just the opposite. They might thwart our efforts to maintain our healthy habits, and they actually might be working against our mental health. The second building block starts with the letter L, the L in plan, and that stands for leadership engagement. Not just leadership support, but leadership engagement. And so the leaders are playing an active role, and there's plenty of different categories within leadership engagement alone. The third building block is norms. Norms are the expected behaviors of a group of people that has something in common. The N in plan stands for norms. And so in a workplace, there's often healthy norms like uh, walking together at uh, break time. And there's often unhealthy norms like checking emails after work hours are done or on weekends. So that's the word plan. And then the small word for, the last word in the phrase success, the first S in success is social climate. The social climate is the way we feel about the people we work with. Do we feel good about working with these people? Do we feel like we're a true team where we can collaborate, we trust each other, we can have a good time together? The two C's in success stand for culture connection points. These culture connection points are like nudges. What can the employer do to make it easier for employees to make healthy choices and have a positive emotional day. Uh, I have like a dozen of those different culture connection points in the mm -hmm. book. And the last S in success is for shared values. I referred to this earlier. Companies have core values and those are usually decided by the executive team or the board of directors. And they often speak to what's good for the company, but leave out what's good for the employees. So I recommend that organizations have core values that are shared by both management and employees and that they include some variation of employee health and well-being, because then you'll know that the organization is making their day-to-day -day decisions based on core values, including health and well-being. So that's plan for success. Got it. So how do we convince organizations and organizational leaders that, you know, having a shared value around workforce well-being contributes to the resilience of an organization. I know resilience, you know, is is top of mind for many business leaders. We talked about, you know, the softening of the economy um, and building resilient organizations. Yeah. And when I see that, I often notice that this whole notion of workforce well-being is missing. Um, but it is mm -hmm. a huge factor of, you know, what contributes to the resilience of an organization. So Jen, the question about shared values and how leaders could embrace the notion of including employee health and well-being could really be answered through Richard Barrett's book, The Value-Driven Organization. 
it's a great book. And Richard Barrett goes through the science of how organizations that include values that demonstrate caring for the employees are much more successful on many different levels, including financial success, when compared to those organizations that have values that really resonate for the organization and the management instead of the employees. So that's a book I recommend people take a look at. When it comes to resilience, I absolutely agree that you can't find resilience without a well-being strategy, and it can't be left to the employees alone. Well-being is a team sport. Everyone needs to be on board to make well-being in the workplace work. Let me give you an example. Resilience depends on our ability to trust those people around us and to know that our team has our back. Managers would be well served to create opportunities where employees can get to know each other as people and not just fellow employees. That means some good old fashioned um, events or whatever social platforms you wanna use to have people get to know if their coworker has a dog, where they live, what their hobbies are. This kind of connection improves trust, which improves resilience. There's several other ingredients, uh, as you know, Jen, to resilience, and managers and leaders need to be part of creating the opportunities to build that resilience. And give me an example of how they would do that. Because I think a lot of times, you know, a historical point of view, a, a dated point of view in many ways, is that these are the types of activities and things that happen outside of work or at least happen outside of the work day. You know, it used to not be that way. <laughs> I, I remember going to the company picnic at my dad's company many years when I was a kid and they'd have a softball game and all these different ways for not just the employees to socialize with each other, but for employees to meet their coworkers' families. And it was a great feeling. Um, Now, it doesn't have to revert back to the company picnic, but we do need to find opportunities to socialize with each other. It goes beyond the socialization. Managers need to find opportunities for employees to work together on projects. All too often, workflows are being broken down so that individuals have one piece of a bigger picture and we're working alone. And loneliness in the workplace is a big problem. And mm-hmm. I don't want to go off on a tangent, but <laughs> this managers have a, a real opportunity to think creatively and position people on the team to work together because not only will it create this sense of community, but it's highly likely that you'll get a better product mm-hmm. out of this collaboration because of the creativity that comes uh, through teamwork. We put a lot of this responsibility on the manager. Um, and many managers themselves are struggling um, and not getting the, you know, the support that they need and aren't 
taking care of their own well-being. Yep. How can we support our managers? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it starts when they're either hired or promoted. Yeah. I mean, it's very rare for a newly hired or promoted manager to receive training in leading with well-being. They're going to get training on all the different software and procedures, but they're not going to get training on what it means to lead with well-being and how they can um, and how they can practice self-care during the workday as well. That's one of the major reasons why I wrote my book, Jen, A Cure for the Common Company. I wanted managers and leaders at all levels to know what they could do for their teams that they could also do for themselves. Uh, it's not an easy answer. Like you can't just snap your finger and everything just falls into place. And I do believe that managers are often overworked uh, just like frontline employees. And companies that can find efficiencies through um, the technology that's available should take advantage of that to bring their workforce to a reasonable workload, not to increase efficiencies, to then put more on top of the managers. If, if companies continue to push employees and managers to the brink, they will leave. Yeah. People are voting with their feet. Yeah, that's not good for any of us. <laughs> No, it's it's not good. And you have a turnover and it creates more stress for the people who are left behind. You know, this is, we, we talked previously, why should, you know, C-suite pay attention to this? Why should they not uh, cut the budget for well-being during a, a potentially a economic downturn? It's because when you do that, you create additional costs for your workplace. It costs money to recruit new talent. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's just this vicious cycle that, you know, our leaders might be contributing to if they decide to cut well-being. Yeah, absolutely. And, I, you know, one of the, the other things that I know you talk about is, you know, there was a longtime focus on kind of the cost of, you know, absenteeism. And while that's valid and viable, you know, presenteeism or, you know, the the, the other, you know, popular term of quiet quitting, right? That people yeah. are kind of showing up, quote unquote, you know, but doing the absolute bare minimum and that the, the cost to an organization's bottom line um, of that is, is huge. And it's something that we're, you know, I don't think we're fully um, looking at or kind of embracing as a real cost. Yeah, I, I just don't know that most leaders appreciate the gravity and the strength of the connection between employee health and well-being and all the various facets of running a successful business. It's, um, you know, I, I, I think they appreciate their own health and well-being, uh, and yet they're not recognizing that many of the people that work in their organization may not have access to all the benefits and privileges mm. that the leaders have. And therefore, they're not respecting the needs um, of the majority of the people who work at that organization. So how do we get them from where we are now to where we, where we know they need to be? <laughs> yeah, you know, Jen, I've been in this area for 25 years, and one of the most challenging pieces has been and remains 
getting leaders to sit long enough to take a comprehensive look at the opportunities that are available through leveraging well-being. Mm. They will sit long enough to hear like a, a quick answer, what's the quick fix? Yeah. But to get them to truly appreciate this is, is challenging. Now, some executives are getting their own uh, well-being coaching, which I think is creating some pockets of epiphany. Uh, and yet it, it's probably not going to be enough to sway a whole leadership team to move. Um, I know that there are some opportunities for executive teams to do well-being retreats. I also know that there are there's at least one book out there that if an executive team read together, it would give them the groundwork for them to have a meaningful conversation internally about how to proceed forward. I think if there's a leadership team that has a genuine interest, there are a number of different paths they can take to get started. Yeah. And, and do you have a name for that book? <laughs> yes. <laughs> a Cure for the Common Company. Um, it's, uh, I think, a necessary read for all leaders, all human resource professionals. And, you know, it, it, it's my hope that since leaders are in such a big rush during the workday, that they are able to read a few pages every day for a couple of weeks so that they can get the full picture and walk away from the book knowing that there is a blueprint for their organization to be successful. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we've talked a lot about leaders and managers. Um, what about for our listeners that, you know, I mean, I, I believe that everyone in an organization is a leader of some sort. Um, but if you don't feel like you're kind of in a people leader role or have the ability to make significant impact to these changes, what can you, what can an individual do to contribute to creating this culture of well-being? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that. And I really like and respect that you shared that everyone's a leader in their own right, and uh, I wholeheartedly agree. It's not uncommon for individuals to make a difference in their organization without the direction of their you know, leaders by title, um, especially on a team. I actually think that there's a lot of managers out there who would appreciate if one of your listeners took the initiative to mm -hmm. be the well-being champion for the team. And being that well-being champion doesn't necessarily mean you're the one who leads that 2 p.m. yoga class. There are a number of different well-being strategies that don't require resources, but really just require some knowledge of the possibilities. So I'll just use the first building block as an example, the P in plan for success. The P is for peer support. And any well-being champion out there could be the person who volunteers to be that peer who can support other people on their team who are struggling with either creating a healthy habit or having difficulty with whatever emotions that their workplace is bringing to them. Now, it's not like your listeners can just go out there and coax their coworkers into sharing their deepest and darkest um, fears and challenges. 
But there is a methodical way to gain the trust of your colleagues and to be seen as an excellent resource in well-being. And how would one do that? <laughs> well, this goes, sure, this goes to the idea of getting to know each other. Mm-hmm. And if you are uncomfortable with sharing how you went from having high blood pressure to normal blood pressure by whatever, by meditating or cutting out um, potato chips, you don't have to do that. Maybe you'd rather just ask a coworker to take a walk with you at lunch. I bet there's at least one person on your team who would really appreciate that culture connection point, that nudge to get them up at lunchtime and moving instead of eating in front of their computer. So these are just small steps, Jen, yeah. that yeah. that anyone can offer. Uh, there's a whole bunch more, but I don't want to use the rest of our time together. <laughs> Nope, I got it. I got it. I just wanted a kind of a, a quick no, example, absolutely, um, of which Make I know it that tangible. There, yeah, that there are are many. Um, and and you brought up kind of a, a, a great thought for me that um, I would be remiss if I didn't ask because um, you said eating you know lunch in front of their computer or their their laptop. What, in your view, I mean, what's been kind of the impact of you know technology on our ability to you know build culture and and create these six building blocks and you know i mean you could say that technology is just a tool and it absolutely is but how do we kind of get out of those ruts of you know of eating <laughs> of eating our lunch at our at our desk behind our 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 computer and not using it as an opportunity um, to either care for our own well-being or, you know, connect with others? Well, if I can just render a quick editorial, there's not a week that goes by that my wife and I feel like um, we've had a net negative with all of the technology revolution uh, compared to what it was like before having mobile devices and electronics at our fingertips at all times of the day. The fact is we have to live with them, so how will we live with them? And technology can be helpful, but it could also be harmful, as you you and I probably agree. On the culture building side, uh, you know we use a platform to bring our employee community together to participate in well-being activities. But it's not just the technology platform that keeps us together. I'm going to give you an example, Jen, uh, because we we started with the example of moving at lunchtime. We offer a steps challenge twice a year at Johns Hopkins. And many of your listeners might be thinking, yeah, steps challenge, done that, been there. Our employees love our steps challenge. We design our steps challenge so that People sign up on teams of coworkers. That gives them that instant peer support by signing up with others. Yes, we use a platform to help us coordinate who these teams are and to keep track of the steps, but we definitely make an effort to bring people together through these teams and through messaging from our leadership. Uh, Our leadership is out there with our employees 
walking at our kickoff launches and we'll be walking at our end walk, our wrap-up walk, excuse me. So um, the, the, we can't just rely on technology alone. We have to have that people connection to really bring well-being uh, to its optimal state. And so are you a believer in hybrid work, virtual work? What, what, where do you fall on that kind of continuum? Obviously, there's always a need for in-person human connection. Um, but what does that look like in your world? Well, I'm glad you asked about my world. So I work uh, for Johns Hopkins Medicine, yeah. which is a large health system. So <laughs> absolutely, the majority of our workforce is in person and on site. And yet, the pandemic caused many of our workers to set up remotely. And we do have a hybrid situation for, for many of the workers who are not healthcare providers. Right. I think that teams need to make every effort to be flexible so that both the employee and the organization win. And I'm pretty confident that people and the organization win when there is at least some in-person interaction. The, the benefits of social connectedness really came to light during the pandemic, although the research has been available for decades. I just think we can't ignore the value of in-person gatherings. And in my opinion, to optimize our own individual health as well as the success of the organization, there has to be opportunities to gather. Yeah, agree. Um, 100% obviously on Phillips. And I wrote a lot about this in, in our own book, Work Better Together. So uh, you're not going to get any argument from me. I do think that, you know, kind of rethinking um, why we gather and, and where we gather or what we go into the office for versus not for those of us that have the ability to, you know, work remotely um, is an important consideration for sure. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned your book, Work Better Together, because I really liked it. And in Thank my you. final chapter of my book, I even quote uh, a couple of sentences um, that I really liked. Thank you for uh, thank you for bringing that work to our community. Absolutely, thank you, and likewise on your book. So I have one final question for you, Rich. I want to know how we started with you know how you became passionate about um, workplace and workforce well being, and so I have to ask, how do you personally embed well being into your workday? What does that look like for you and your teams? Oh, thanks. Uh, well, I start my workday uh, with a cup of coffee, and then I do 10 minutes of meditation, and then I'm off to uh, the rest of my day. But every day I get outside and walk or some other form of exercise. I also am a pesco vegan with a side of chocolate. Um <laughs> And uh, I've been fortunate. Dark chocolate or milk chocolate, white um, chocolate. <laughs> you know, I try dark chocolate, but the problem is, I, 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 that's really it. I do have a problem, and if I see chocolate, um, I have a reflex. It's called the chocolate reflex. So I, I try for dark chocolate, but I'm a little bit. I, soft I love that you moment. named it the chocolate refre reflex. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
<laughs> All right. Sorry. I totally took no, us off track there. Tell no, me about the rest of your day. <laughs> no, that's that's okay. I mean, I, I make it a point with my team to um, have meetings in person. We cover a large geographic area in Maryland and the District of Columbia, and we even have a hospital in Florida. So we find that we're in different places on different days of the week. But we do come together uh, several times a month to be sure we have face-to-face interaction. Great, great. Well, Rich, thank you again for being on the show. Um, you know, so so much wisdom um, in talking to you as well as in your book and, and the rest of the work that you do. So thank you. Um, and hopefully we will talk soon. Thanks very much, Jen. I'm so grateful Dr. Safir could be with us today to talk about workplace well-being. Thank you to our producers, Rivet360, and our listeners. You can find the WorkWell podcast series on Deloitte.com, or you can visit various podcatchers using the keyword WorkWell, all one word, to hear more. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe so you get all of our future episodes. If you have a topic you'd like to hear on the WorkWell podcast series, or maybe a story you would like to share, please reach out to me on LinkedIn. My profile is under the name Jen Fisher or on Twitter at JenFish23. We're always open to your recommendations and feedback. And of course, if you like what you hear, please share, post, and like this podcast. Thank you and be well. The information, opinions, and recommendations expressed by guests on this Deloitte podcast series are for general information and should not be considered as specific advice or services.